This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today I'm talking with Dr. Carol Anderson about her National Book Critics Circle award-winning book entitled White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Since 1865 and the passage of the 13th Amendment, every time African Americans have made advances toward full participation in our democracy, white reaction has fueled a deliberate and relentless rollback of their gains. Carefully linking historical flashbacks when social progress for African Americans was countered by deliberate and cleverly crafted opposition, Dr. Carol Anderson pulls back the veil that has long covered actions made in the name of protecting democracy, fiscal responsibility, or protection against fraud, rendering visible the long lineage of white rage. Dr. Carol Anderson is a Charles Howard Candler professor and Chair of African American Studies at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Carol Anderson, welcome to Book Speeds and Beyond. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me, Taj. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We we appreciate you coming on. Now, what what in particular compare, compelled you to write this book? You know, so let me let me begin at the beginning. Um, I will, because it, it actually launched from an op-ed that I did in the Washington Post. Yes, yes. So I'm watching the television. Ferguson is blowing up. Um, and it didn't matter what channel I watched. I'm flipping. And they're all saying the same thing. Why are black people burning up where they live? Mm-hmm. Look at black people burning up where they live. Can you believe black people are burning up where they live? Mm-hmm. And and then it was the the kind of subtext of black pathology. The the entire discussion, and I'm putting discussion in quotes, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it was MSNBC, CNN, or Fox, was so ahistorical. It was so drilled into right at that moment that the lens was never pulled back. And so it was always about this black rage, black rage, black mm-hmm. rage. Mm-hmm. And I had lived in Missouri for 13 years, and I'm shaking my head, no, going, oh, no, 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 that's white rage. And I went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that's white rage. Mm-hmm. And then I just started writing because I wanted to put what we were seeing into, one, its historical context, but also, as I have said, to blow graphite onto white rage's fingerprint so we can see it over time mm-hmm. because it's almost invisible because it doesn't operate the way that we think it operates. You know, we hear the word rage right. and, you know, we're thinking Charlottesville, right? Mm-hmm. We're thinking white angry people shouting epithets, burning crosses, burning tiki torches or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and um but what I'm talking about is that really cool, quiet, subtle, meticulous kind of rage mm. that operates in um zoning boards, that operates in the Supreme Court, 
that operates in legislatures and, and congresses where they sit there and they figure out how to craft laws and policies and decisions that systematically undermine African Americans' advancement towards gaining their citizenship rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what, what launched this book was a way to use my skills as a historian to begin to lay out exactly how we got here. Yeah, I remember that Washington Post op-ed too. That that was a powerful one because when I did read it, I was like, it, it clicked for me too. Like, yes, that's what it is. It is white rage. And yes. as I read the book, I was like, yes, it is very subtle and in quotes respectable in a way of how they go about it. And, yes. and it's just it's just amazing the the projection they put onto people of African American descent when it's really the other way around. So right, yeah, <laughs> right. That that that's what struck me in is is so the the language of you know so like I said part of it was dealing with the myth of black pathology. Mm-hmm. You know, if black people would only vote. But, you know, my God, you know, here they are, and they just won't vote. So how, how do you expect to have politicians who care about them when they just won't vote? Mm-hmm. Well, then what we ignore are all of the methods used right. to stop black people from voting, and that when black people do vote, they are punished. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the other piece that, that's a component of this. When black people fight for education, schools get closed down. It, it, it funding gets yanked. Right. When black people are voting, like um, with Barack Obama, because that's where you had millions, uh, uh, what, two million new African Americans came to the polls and were voting at near the rate of whites. Boom, we start seeing a massive surge in right. voter suppression laws after that. Right, right. Yeah. I think I think what's what's incredible is in the book you really like rewind it back to like a, a certain part, a different eras in our time where rack, white wages are sparked. Like you started off talking about the link between you know, after the Civil War and the Reconstruction era in the United States in white rage. What was it about that era that sparked white rage? And I firmly believe that it was this sense that property Mm. became first human beings and then citizens. Mm. Talk about destabilizing an entire power structure, an entire social structure, an entire legal structure. Property becomes citizen? (laughs) (laughs) That moment was so jarring. When you read through how um, uh, white Southerners were just beside themselves, absolutely appalled. Um, absolutely unsure of what kind of world they could possibly live in, exist in, where folk who had been property all along in their eyes, in their legal eyes, Mm -hmm. 
we're now, because of the 14th Amendment, citizens of the United States, and because of the 15th Amendment, now black men could vote? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 was, it, it was one of those like, oh, no, we're not doing this. And so <laughs> part of what I lay out is when you get Andrew Johnson, who becomes the president after Lincoln's assassination, and Andrew Johnson is right up there. He he does not believe that black people really are human beings. Right. Um, that the, one of the first things he does is to begin to uh, give amnesty to the Confederate leadership. I know, that was so, crazy. Yeah. yeah, right? So these are folks who attack the United States. I We call them traitors. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And to provide amnesty so that these folks then reassume the reins of government, the reins of power. And so I, like reading through the, the, the um, Constitutional Convention in Louisiana where they're drafting up their new constitution to, to then become part of the United States again. And it starts off with ours is and will forever be a government of white people. Wow, okay. Wow. And that people of African descent can never be Mm -hmm. citizens. Mm -hmm. Now, when that's in your constitution. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's there's I mean, what can you say? Right. 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 (laughs) (laughs) I I think I think something that also was you talked about Johnson. But when you started talking about the black codes i I know a lot of people understand stand the black codes but so i don't want to get too much in detail about that but knowing that you could get punished for not having a job and you can be auctioned off and you're a free person like the black codes like were like blatantly and like indirectly like impeded african-american economic independence you know in our in our dignity but it also this whole fear of black people also had a negative indirect impact on poor whites. <laughs> Can you talk about that in a sense? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things. And so right now then I'm going to reference a piece that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote mm. on the first white president. Mm-hmm. And in there, he's dealing with this white working class that aligns itself with white supremacy. But in doing so, absolutely undermines its own economic viability. Mm. And so you – because what, it, what the larger system says is at least you're white. Right. And puts incredible valence of value on that whiteness so that even though you're, you're dirt poor – so example – Uh, The Freedmen's Bureau, the Freedmen's Bureau, um, one of its its missions was to create schools Mm -hmm. because there was no system of education in the South. The Freedmen's Bureau schools were open to the newly freed as well as to whites. Mm -hmm. Poor whites refused to go because they weren't going to be around any kind of in school, right? Mm. They wanted no part of some in school because at least they were white because the thing that would separate them, that had separated them um, prior to slavery was that they couldn't be enslaved because they were white. 
And so that kind of destabilization of their societal status after the end of slavery was just jarring, so they wanted no part of it. The other piece, with the black codes, where it required African Americans to sign an annual labor contract, um, and that they could only have basically two kinds of jobs in the fields, um, as, as you know, agricultural labor or as domestics. What that did, though, was it so depressed wages because right. you can see how it destabilizes one of the tenets of capitalism, that labor has the right to take its labor to the best employer, to, to you know, to get the best uh, salary. But when you, you short-circuit that and you have a built-in labor pool that you can pay absolutely depressed wages to, right. then whites themselves cannot compete in that market because for the, the plantation owner, for the lumber mill owner, for the sugar uh, plantation owner – it didn't make any sense to hire whites mm -hmm. when you could basically pay slave wages to blacks who were forced to work there because if they didn't, then they would be criminalized. The sheriffs would come in, round them up, charge them with vagrancy, and then auction their labor off to the same doggone plantation owner. Yeah. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hey, yo, I actually think it's crazy to see my people like this. Because this will happen when you go and kill a generation of leaders. They criminalize our black movements until they didn't exist. If this is making you uncomfortable, yo, I wouldn't fuck with me either, so yo, check it. I get it, you want to be savage when shit is reckless. Because even I respond different when my emotions is invested. Brody, by all means, I hear you when I fuck with it. But if you respond with anger without a goal, then they gon' profit from the punishment. Oh. Look, I don't know it all, I just do my research on the government. True. I'm 26, True. a young parent with two kids that God trusts me with. Yeah. I can't fail, ain't no way. Mostly got a daughter now. I know you a man, Brody, but I got your back when you falling down. I see the difficulties that life throwing at niggas like us. They finding ways to discredit us, so I can't get us up. I gotta spread the message fast, quarterback and set the pass, cause I know the truth about them trying to put us in a permanent second class. You feel I can't keep living life this way. Always watching for the loophole. Land of the free, but we all got a price to pay. Gotta watch out for the loophole. And they hate it when a young man got something to say. If you like the music you just heard, you can go inside our show notes. I have links where you can purchase it. And when you do, you support the artists and you support the show. All right. And for those who do that already, just want to say thank you. Now let's get back to talking to Dr. Carol Anderson about her book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. There was another part of the book where there was an, um, another big part that kind of sparked white rage. And it kind of relates to what you're saying with the economic part. It was the, the, the Great Migration. Right. You know, uh, African-Americans leaving the South and going to the perceived freedom in the north. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that migration engendered such white rage? They're trying, you know, we're just trying to leave. 
why are you getting mad when you don't really like us in the first place? So if you could talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I tell you, this is the beauty of doing historical research, mm-hmm. you know, because there are times when you just shake your head. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with the Great Migration, the Great Migration was sparked by the need for war material mm-hmm. during the First World War. Um, Because this was total war. Mm -hmm. And U.S. manufacturers are gearing up, gearing up. But their their labor force, which had been European immigrants, were in fact leaving to go back to fight for their mother country. Mm. And so now there's no labor really to produce the materiel. And and so northern um, industrialists began looking around. They went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. There are millions of black people down in the South. We have never tapped them for industrial labor. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> let's head <laughs> south. Let's get them to come north. Now, you let's be clear. This is not some uh, general beneficial society thing. This is we need <laughs> that labor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, the conditions in the South were absolutely horrific. Mm -hmm. Um, Black people were being paid uh, significantly less than white labor. Uh, There was Jim Crow, so lynching still at the tune of about one every other day Mm -hmm. for a decade. There, the lack of, of public schools for, for black children. Black children couldn't go to school until after the harvest came in, so that usually meant sometime in October, November. Mm. Um, so you've got this truncated school year with Jim Crow funded schools, and black parents want their children to be educated. And they don't want to have to worry about uh, when when the child or their husband or their brother walks outside the house that the next time you're going to see them, they're going to be hung, hanging from a tree. Mm-hmm. And so when the North came down with labor agents talking about we have good paying jobs up North, mm-hmm. black folks were like, you mean I get to be a little bit freer? I can breathe freer. Oh, yeah, we're gone. Now, as black people started to leave, the southern politicians and and business folks started going, well, wait, wait a minute. Uh-uh. You don't have the right to leave. And again, so part of what strikes me is how we have these tenets, these narratives about um, American democracy and about the America, the land of opportunity. Um, and one of our major tenets, of course, is that you have the right to go where the best opportunity is. Right. You know, it's it's like folks going out to L.A., right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that you go where the opportunity is. Laws started getting passed in Mississippi, in Florida, in Georgia, forbidding black people to leave mm. to get a better job. Let's just sit on that for a minute. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's like, wow. When black folk would be at the train station with the train ticket in their hand, 
the sheriffs would come and rip the tickets out of their hand and then arrest them for vagrancy. Gosh, this is ridiculous because <laughs> at the same time, like you said, we have the right to move around for better jobs. The government was also supporting uh, people of European descent to go out west and do whatever you, you know, all kind of subsidies. But then on the other hand, you don't like us, but at the same time, you don't want us to leave. There's all this, like you said, this subtle white rage that do yes. the government <laughs> that doesn't, you know, they kind of say, you know, you know, it's black people. You, 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 you can't do this. Um, it doesn't make sense. You stay here. This is where you belong. This is where you have to be. Right. And I think what was also important around that time was um, our freedom of speech was also taken from us. We. Well, yeah, right. Yes. Yes. So one of the um, major stimulators and stimulants and con key elements in the Great Migration was the Chicago Defender, mm. um, just an incredible black newspaper. Mm. And uh, so quick story. My, my, my mother tells the story about my grandfather because we're Southern. Mm -hmm. And she said that granddaddy would fold that Chicago Defender on his, under his arm and walk into a place going, yeah, I got my fender. <laughs> yeah, because it was hard to come by at a certain time, right? Right, you uh, know. Yeah. And, and it was a sign of your resilience, your strength. Uh, yeah. It was a sign of your independence. Mm -hmm. Well, once the um, some of these southern states began to, not states, but uh, locales, began to figure out the role of the Chicago Defender mm -hmm. in the Great Migration because the Chicago Defender, one, had a series of editorials like, you need to get out of the South. Mm -hmm. There is nothing for you there. And for, and, and for the, the black folk who are telling you to stay because it's cold up in Chicago and you're going to freeze, you're freezing already. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Come, come north, and they're like, and we will, we, we here, here, here are the housing. Here's housing. Um, there are job opportunities here. We're going to hook you up with the Urban League, and they'll find you jobs. And so it was this kind of beacon, like, come on, come on. So in the United States of America, where there is a First Amendment that talks about freedom of the press. Locales in the South banned the sale and the distribution of the Chicago Defender. I know, that was amazing. <laughs> Just totally amazing. But that didn't stop it, though. <laughs> no, oh, no. Oh, you know, because black folks said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then started slipping it through the mails because they couldn't open up the mail, right? right. Well, or they started sending it in in terms of um, um, what you call bulk goods. So if you you had a, a stack of some kind of good, like flour or something, they'd put it in 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 between the bags. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
the the por- the porters, the Pullman porters. Oh yeah, yeah, very important. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, so they were they were the above ground railroad. <laughs> 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 you know, so black people were working out ways around these laws to get information about how to get out mm-hmm. of a place that systematically denied them their basic rights. Wow. Now, to be clear, the North was not the promised land. Right, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Like, I know, yeah. it, you know, it was overtly and blatantly horrible in the South, but the North maybe was a little bitter, bittersweet in a sense. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. You know, so it, 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 so what happened in the North Um, when black folks got to Chicago, when they got to Detroit, and I spend a lot of time on Detroit, as you know, Mm -hmm. um, they had massive uh, residential segregation, restrictive covenants that, that, that walled black folk into just a small area of the city. Mm -hmm. In Detroit, what happened was there was an area called Black Bottom. With the Great Migration, because of the way uh, of residential segregation, Black Bottom's um, population grew by 10 times. Mm. Now, when you put 10 times the number of people into the same little square mile area, square mileage area, you're getting massive overcrowding. But what also is happening is that in this area in Detroit in the 1920s, only one fourth of the housing had indoor plumbing. Oh wow! And then what was happening? I mean, it was just like boom, 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 boom. Yeah. It was basic supply and demand. So that because housing was already so limited, the number of people who wanted and needed that housing then led the price to get jacked up yeah. sky high right. from absentee landlords who are raking in the dough but not investing back in those properties to keep them up. Mm. So poor black people are spending an an inordinate share of their very limited resources Mm -hmm. just for poor quality housing. Right, so whatever money they were making compared to Mm -hmm. the North is going into just trying to maintain any kind of sense of survival up there. Mm. Yes, yes. And so, you know, I tell the story of Dr. Ossie and Sweet. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's that that right there. When I when I read that, I was a little proud, but at the same time, I was like, <laughs> "That's very dangerous too." So, uh-huh. talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Ossie and Sweet. He he had come out of a very poor poor family out of Florida. Um, Ended up getting his uh, medical degree out of Howard, moved to Detroit, um, was married, had a beautiful little baby girl, and was living in Black Bottom. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm not living here. There's no reason for me to live here. Um, And so he bought a house on Garland Avenue in a white working class neighborhood. Now, so let me also be really clear here. We have a physician moving into a working-class neighborhood mm. where nobody else has a college degree. Wow, yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. 
whites in that neighborhood went crazy. Yes. Went crazy. They had they created this homeowners association to protect the value Mm -hmm. of their neighborhood from this invasion. Mm. (laughs) And they started surrounding his home. Yelling all kinds of epithets, he calls the police. The police come and they like take up a ringside seat watching the event. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> and rocks start getting thrown at his house, and you know they're like, "Kill the, we're going to get you." Da 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 da. And Ossie and Sweet is old school. <laughs> you step your tail on my property. Yeah. You threaten me and mine. I'm not having it. They had an arsenal in that house because of the threats. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm going to go back to one of the kind of bedrock principles that we hear in American society. Just like I talked about, you know, with opportunity, you go where you get the best opportunity. That is, of course, unless you're black. Mm -hmm. Here it is. We believe that you have the right to self-defense. Right, yes. You have the right to protect your property and your life when it is under assault, when it is under threat. Right, yeah. This is clear. You've got – one estimate has about 1,000 people around his house throwing rocks. 1,000 people. 1,000 people. Windows start breaking. After the windows break, Ossie and Sweet – and his brother and some others who are in the house shoot out the window to get that crowd to move back. Ooh, that crowd moved. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they moved. (laughs) And two men, though, went down. Mm. Then the cops come running. (laughs) Not before, but then the cops come running, and they arrest Ossie and Sweet. And everyone in that house, and they're charged with murder. Wow. Well, that's interesting that they were arrested. I, you know, <laughs> it could have been and something not else. Lynched. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. You know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. It. But. But when you think about it, was one of the things that I I I, I study is the use of the criminal justice system. Oh yeah. To to in fact. Um, institute legal lynchings mm-hmm. is that kind of like when you're talking about the the res, quote respectability and the the moral high ground of white, white rage in a sense yes mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. so that if what you can do is run them through a legal process because one of the things that was happening because the NAACP has started being because they were founded in um, 1909 mm-hmm. and they had this massive anti-lynching campaign going on. And so they were beginning to change the narrative about lynching Mm -hmm. in the United States because whites had always called it, you know, we're protecting the um, sanctity of white womanhood. (laughs) We're, we're, we're keeping the Negro criminals at bay. And and the NAACP is like, nah, y'all murdering folks. (laughs) Right. Let me be real clear here. <laughs> so um, what 
was happening in the criminal justice system then was you started getting some policymakers talking about, oh, yeah, you know, we need to kind of tone down on this lynching thing. But we can run them through the courts and have the same result. But now it has the stamp of looking legal, respectable. Right, right. right. The courts were kind of like – they kind of protected the terrorism in a sense. Oh, my gosh. And and that was one of the things that I I hope was clear is that the violence is real. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying at all that the violence that black people faced is not real. Right. But the thing about white rage is that it gives sanction to that violence. Mm -hmm. It makes that violence normative and acceptable. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were seeing. So when you have white surrounding a man's home, and and so there was that moment in, I'm reading through the the interview, the police interview with Ossie and Sweet, and they're like, so why'd you move into that neighborhood? <laughs> yeah, that's what they asked first, right? Mm-hmm. Right. She's like, because I wanted to own my own home. <laughs> well, why'd you pick that neighborhood? Why that neighborhood? Mm-hmm. What made you think you could move into that neighborhood? Because mm-hmm. I could afford a home there. <laughs> so, you know, and he's like, so then when you bought them, why did you move in? <laughs> now imagine that question. Right. <laughs> When you bought the home, why did you move into the home you bought? It's it's almost like like the word rage. When you're in rage, you're not thinking straight, right? Right. Exactly. And and but but the, to do it with all of the edifice of yeah. of power mm-hmm. around of respectable power. Mm-hmm. So he's in a police station. He's in an interrogation room. They've got the power, and they're asking him this, and he can't say, have you gone outside your mind? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, he's trying to answer, because I bought the house? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but why <laughs> did you think you could move in there? <laughs> no, because I bought the house. <laughs> oh, I see you're being difficult and not answering my question. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, but I think what was amazing was, if I remember correctly, when he went through the system, he actually came out not guilty. Is that right? It took two trials. Oh, wow. Two trials. And eventually he was found not guilty because they really – they with, in the second trial, they particularly went after his brother because his brother had admitted pulling the trigger. Oh, okay. But by the time the trials were done, Ossian Sweet's wife had contracted tuberculosis oh. by being in that god-awful dank jail. Mm. Their baby girl had contracted tuberculosis. And his brother Henry had contracted tuberculosis. Mm. And all of them died. Oh, wow. I mean, so you begin to kind of think about here you have, and so this is what one of the key elements I talk about in white rage is that the trigger for white rage is black aspiration, black achievement, right. and black refusal to be subjugated. Right. And right. so here you have a family of strivers. Mm-hmm. Here you have a family 
that would be the American dream, right? You know that narrative. Again, I'm fascinated by these narratives. That narrative about how you come out of a poor sharecropping family. Um, you don't have two nickels to run, rub together. But yet through hard work and determination, you end up at Howard University and you become a physician and then you, 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 you have your own practice in Detroit and you have a beautiful wife, a beautiful baby girl, your brother's in law school. You know, it's, it's reading like the American dream, right. except they're black. Mm -hmm. And so all of them are destroyed. Ossie and Sweet eventually committed suicide. Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, <laughs> that's the power of white rage. Wow. So when I talk about how black aspiration and black achievement is the trigger for white rage, it's not the presence of black people. It's black people who refuse to accept their place. Right, right. We'll be right back. As a black person in America, when you see the police, say a little prayer to the shepherd who let wolves guard the sheep. Since the Ku Klux look like the Ku Klux, you ain't got a glue clues as common as glucose to glimpse them in a blue cloak. Welcome to America, the new coca. Cold and cold, it would have been the cold and cold, and the cold and get no doses from the club. Club full of killers, killing cubs just because color is incredible cause to make that bird call. Incredible cause to a mother to get that curse call. That's a curve stop to a confidence that's as common as condiments. That's that kind of incompetence that'll conjure a confidence. We have more security after we built a company, eh, bro? And that kind of leads into, I think you were talking about another big error when it white rage really exploded was the the desegregation de of the public schools. Ooh. Like <sighs> that right there. I mean, a lot of us know about that. We hear it all the time. But you touched on how with the overturning of the um, Brown ruling, it also kind of made it even more difficult for African-Americans to register it, to vote. In a yes. Can you link that connection up? I sure will, because um, these pieces are tied together. That's what's so important to understand about the way that rights work, mm -hmm. um, is that if you destabilize one right, you're also destabilizing the whole litany of them. Right. And so what the um, South began to figure out 
um, in the early, oh, let me back up, in the early 50s, so now we have come out of the Second World War where the U.S. has fought Nazis. I just need to say that. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> okay? You fight, and, in, you and fight it, in a form of white rage. <laughs> you know, right? right. And, 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 where, and where the U.S. has said Nazis are bad. Right. right. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, just, I just needed to put that out there. <laughs> the NAACP um, is launching a series of voter registration drives in the deep south and has gone into Mississippi. So it doesn't get any deeper than that. <laughs> and is beginning to have some success with mm-hmm. voter registration despite the terror. I mean, black folks are getting killed for registering to vote. Yeah. And the NAACP is in there working hard because it's saying through the power of the vote, you can get these racist folks off of on top of you. Mm-hmm. You can put in power people who resonate with the needs of our community because African-Americans were about, I think, about 40, 45 percent of the black of the population in Mississippi. Wow. Yeah. When Brown came down, Mississippi looked up and went, oh, no, no, (laughs) no, we're not doing that. And, And then said, "Okay, now, how do we begin to stop this thing? And they already had several pieces. And so one piece was, okay, because if black people are registered to vote and they can vote, then they're going to put into power um, state legislators who believe that Brown should be implemented and that black children have a right to education. Mm -hmm. They're going to put into power school boards who are going to work hard to ensure that black schools, that black children have the kind of education that they need. If, you know, then we've got to first stop them from voting. And so Mississippi rewrote its voter laws. Now, you need to stop me when this starts sounding familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Rewrote its voter laws to require everybody to re-register again, Mm -hmm. particularly in the counties that were heavily black. Mm. In that re-registration process, they increased the requirements for um, literacy tests, understanding clauses, so that you had to read a portion of the Constitution and interpret it. Oh, could they do it themselves? <laughs> no. <laughs> Come on. No. Right. But, you know, and so, and what they would do so that black folks would have this long, long paragraph Mm -hmm. in the Constitution, and white folks would have one sentence. Mm -hmm. Mm. And the registrar would determine whether you passed or not. Mm, Wow. Right? So this isn't some objective test. So there are stories of black folk who have – who've come down to Mississippi with their uh, Harvard law degree and could not pass Mm -mm. the literacy test in terms of interpreting the Constitution. Mm -mm. So this definitely sounds like, told me kind of stop you when it kind of makes sense, (laughs) is with with Obama, the the government IDs. Yes! Right. Yes, exactly. So uh, what happened there 
in that re-registration in the mid-1950s, black registration dropped by two-thirds. Mm, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's because if you can't vote, then you don't have any kind of say yeah. in the kind of political leadership that is determining your future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the point. Right. And one of the things that they also did was they worked out a scheme to shut down the public schools. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because the rationale there was, well, the Supreme Court is saying our schools have to be equal. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have a public school, then nobody, you know, then schools are equal because nobody has it. Right. But you and I both know it wasn't going to roll like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, what the uh, uh, the legislatures did then was then they set up these voucher systems wow. hmm. to pay the tuition for white students to go to all white private academies. Wait, wait, wait. So this. Th- Maybe you can help me understand this, but it sounds like you're taking public school money and putting it into private school. Now, how is that different than what's going on today with charter schools? Hello. Right. See, there, you know, Mark Twain is said, is is rumored to have said, history may not repeat itself, (laughs) but it show do rhyme. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And, And so this is another reason why... In the writing of White Rage, I wanted to to, to foreground this history mm-hmm. so that we could see these rhythms, right. so we could see that this is not new, and we could see how pernicious this is, and we could also see the roots of it. Mm-hmm. What's what's driving this, so that we don't we don't get swallowed up in that language that they use of democracy. So, you know, so at the time. During Brown, you know, they talked about protecting our schools, protecting our children, protecting our heritage, mm-hmm. um, protecting states' rights. States' rights is always the thing, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Then, um, and today we hear protecting, oh, oh, and, and with the re-registration, it was protecting the integrity of the ballot box. The integrity of the ballot box, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so today we have mm, Chris Kobach and Mike Pence uh, talking about protecting the integrity of the ballot box Mm-mm-mm. while implementing absolutely horrific voter suppression laws that are designed to keep black people, poor people, brown people, young people from voting. Because if you can't vote, (laughs) then you have no say in terms of the politicians who are crafting the policies that determine the quality of your life. And that's what I like about your book, because we all have friends, associates, especially if you're African-American, that say there's no reason to vote. You know, they're not going to listen anyway. And the people, when they hear us say that, they clap because that's exactly what they want us to hear. So when you really understand all the dog whistles and stuff that they use, you realize the the biggest thing we can do is vote, you know? Yes. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. That is the biggest thing we could do, you know. And so I heard, so, yeah, I've heard, you know, I've heard that over. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the system. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. Mm-hmm. If it didn't matter, would states that are millions of dollars in the hole be spending millions of dollars on voter suppression? Right. Right. You know, so Alabama, millions of dollars in the hole, budget deficit, but implementing voter suppression law. So one of the things with Alabama currently, so let's do Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) So Alabama, I think in 2011, so we are toward the uh, end of the first Obama term. Mm They put forth a voter suppression law, a voter ID law. You must have a government-issued photo ID to vote. Um, Shelby County v. Holder in 2013 made this really easy for them because now they're no longer under the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And so they can just, boom, go with this law. What they say then is in terms of acceptable government-issued photo ID, public housing ID does not count. Oh. What? Right. Okay. But a driver's license does. Hmm. 20% of African Americans do not own a car. Hmm. So so when you then say a, 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 a driver's license counts, you're immediately going after black folk. Right. Then what Alabama did, you got to love them. <laughs> Or as they say, because I'm in Atlanta, bless their hearts. (laughs) (laughs) They then shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in what's called the Black Belt Counties. Mm. Eight of the ten Black Belt Counties, they shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles. Now, they didn't say they were doing this because they didn't want black people to vote. What they said was, we're under fiscal restraint, and this is a way for us to save money. Uh, uh. Uh-huh. <laughs> because it sounds so logical. They're being fiscally responsible. Mm. The two black belt counties where they didn't shut these down, though, included where Selma is uh, and Montgomery. Mm. That'd be too visible, right? Too visible. Mm. <laughs> too visible. So then, but but we saw it anyway. And so this is massive hue and cry and push against Governor Bentley in in Alabama to to open those those Department of Motor Vehicles up because the the way you do it is first you create an obstacle you need a government issued photo ID and only a certain type and then you create an obstacle to that obstacle mm-hmm. now I'm going to shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles so you have to go out of county mm. <laughs> you know this- and you can't drive. So that means you're going to have to get somebody who does have a car and who can take the day off because mm-hmm. when Governor Bentley then opened those things up, he opened them up for one day a month. Wow. <laughs> well, really? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the estimates are in Alabama, somewhere between 100,000 to 250,000 people do not have the required government-issued photo ID. You can do a lot of damage yeah. by just automatically Xing out Gosh. that many people from the polls. You know, the, the the thing that frustrates me the most is whenever 
I guess people always use the, 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 the word game. Whenever you try to play the game, there's always someone changing the rules. Yes. And it just shows how resilient we are. But it's tiring, too. It's very tiring. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so what is the thing? The, the, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Mm, mm-hmm. um, yes, it is requiring us to be eternally vigilant. Mm. It, it, and, and it's requiring us to, to pay attention to all of these things that are happening. Um, but the beauty is, with all of that, is that there are enough organizations that are focused in on key elements of this, yeah. and we need to support them, right? And we need to register to vote, regardless, yeah, regardless. of the, the how high the barrier they put. Because I look at it this way: if if in the early 1950s, black folks in Mississippi were willing to risk death yeah. to register to vote. Mm-hmm. We can figure this thing out and right. do the same. Right. I always tell people that if there if there's something they're trying to hold from us, I meant to they'll do anything to keep it away from us. That's what we need to try to get. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> Education, it right there. <laughs> the vote. <laughs> right. And, and I think what what it was interesting how we talked about how poor whites, regardless, they didn't care, they didn't want to do anything. They had it, you know, if it was going to benefit them, even you know, knowing that they're going to be around African Americans, they still didn't care. But I think looking at talking about how Southern states were stalling and defying and undermining tactics when it came to uh, voter suppression, school desegregation, and so forth. Um. Not only African Americans were generations were devastated, but the U.S. economy. Oh my! If gosh. you if you parallel that with poor whites on a U.S. perspective, that's really hurting our competitiveness, right? Right, and and that was. <laughs> I love it that you have read this book <laughs> <laughs> because that was my other point. We we often think about. What happens to black folks is just an us thing, right? This nation does that. Well, you know, black people, da-da-da, as if somehow it's cordoned off, siloed off from its effect on the nation at large. But the systematic denial of basic rights to African Americans has undermined the viability and the strength of the United States. Um, One of the pieces I talk about in the book deals with um, shortly after Brown, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, quaking and quivering is happening in the Department of Defense, in the White House, and the State Department. They're like, oh, because what that means is that the Soviets now have the ability to hook their nuclear arsenal onto a projectile mm-hmm. that can cross the ocean <laughs> and hit the United States. This is a national security crisis because we are talking about nuclear annihilation. This is like this is in the, I put this in the land of people. This isn't hard. <laughs> <laughs> so what the the federal government decides to do is to put hundreds of millions of dollars into education, mm. 
to help what they say create the brain power to fight the Cold War, to create more scientists and engineers that can help the U.S. stay apace or ahead of the Soviet Union, to, to, to try to fend off and protect U.S. national security. Mm-hmm. This is like top priority. In the hearings for the National Defense Education Act, the top priority was to maintain Jim Crow. So that um, what the senators who were leading this charge wanted to know was, because remember, Brown is 54. Mm -hmm. Brown, too, with all deliberate speed, is 1955. Mm -hmm. Sputnik is 1957. Mm -hmm. And the South has dug in with massive resistance. Mm -hmm. The Southern senators, particularly those out of Alabama, are asking, Can we access this money and still deny blacks admission to our universities? Can we still keep the University of Alabama all white in defiance of the Supreme Court decision, which should be the law of the land, and get federal money? And the federal government, the White House said, absolutely yes. So think about that, how the priority is not national security. No. The priority in the most – and I mean, when, and when you read through the, the, the hearings, there's none of this, we got to keep these N-words out of – you know, it's very deliberate. Well, we need to maintain yeah. the integrity of our schools <laughs> and – you know, we need to ensure that we still have the kind of quality that will allow us to uh, train the engineers and scientists that can keep the America competitive in the Cold War. It's beautiful language, <laughs> but behind it is an entirely racist agenda. Mm-hmm. And the import of that is one of the things I said, okay, so um, what What does this look like? What does it look like when the U.S. makes a conscious decision in the midst of a national security crisis to not invest in science and engineering for black people? And I saw that 50 years after Brown, there were no black Ph.D.s awarded um, in that year, in 2004. Um, in astrophysics, and that in 2100 or so um, fields in in the natural sciences, no black PhDs. Mm. Begin to think about in um, an economy that is science-driven, technology-driven, knowledge-driven, what does it mean when we have not invested in that, when we had the resources to do so? So this isn't about being resource poor. This is about priorities. Right. Yeah, I think that was that was really incredible. Like knowing, you know, national security issue still that is in the back of their minds. Well, not even the back of their minds. It's at the forefront to just stop that. Like, and then as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, okay, I might be off my dates, but at the same time, you got these ladies that were in the movie Hidden Figures. Yes, yes. That right there, if you open it up to everybody, do you know where we could be right now? 
Yes. Doesn't that help you understand a little bit? Yes. I mean, that's what I, I mean. I'm, I, when, when Hidden Figures came out, I'm like, yes! <laughs> because, you know, and you begin to think about, you know, so how many times have we heard that the U.S. is just not competitive? Right. That, um, you know, the, 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 our schools are lagging behind, da 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 da, many of the other industrialized nations, da 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 da. That's by choice. Yeah, by choice. And, and so, White rage carries enormous consequences for white folk. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think of, um, as well, the Lee Atwater quote. Oh, that was right in my head right now. I was just thinking about that. (laughs) Yeah. We'll be right back. Where the body cams at when they kill Sandra Blando? Where the justice system at when the cops go Rambo? Black lives matter when we talking about Philando. But all lives matter when we talking about Orlando. 49 dead bodies, 83 in France though. They say Alton had a gun, we ain't see it in his hands though. We screaming fuck the police, but what about Dallas? All these murders on the news. Every week it's another one. DJ Khaled, how we gon' respect the badge if you don't protect and serve? They say life ain't a movie, but it's feeling like the purge. And it's rag in my pocket, match the blood on the curb. Hit the shots in the hood, but can they feel it in the birds? Turn on the news, get seduced by the words. And the noose on a black man's neck sound absurd. Summer 16 look like more than a Drake song, and that's just this shit. Y'all forgot about Trayvon? We're back, and we are talking to Dr. Carol Anderson about her book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Lee Atwater was the strategist for Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lee Atwater uh, was one of the main implementers of a thing called the Southern Strategy. Yeah. And what that was about was to move white uh, particularly the, of the solid Democratic South, because remember, uh, when the Republicans were the party of Lincoln, mm-hmm. so the South hated Lincoln. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so the South was Democratic. <laughs> um, until, until Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm. And then... So I was like, what, what did you just do? <laughs> you, you, you said that black people were citizens? Mm. They had rights, <laughs> which was just uh, anathema. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and then came the Voting Rights Act of 65. 
Nixon originally hops on this thing and begins to court via the Southern strategy. But Reagan was the master. Oh, yeah. Talk about him. And so what Lee Atwater says is – In 1954, you could say the Mm N-word, but by 1968, you can't. Mm. It hurts you. Backfires. So you start talking about um, economic things like cutting taxes, um, like busing. And he said, and all of these things are economic But the point is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. I I just want to clap my hand for the person who recorded that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And see, and the thing was is is that it was a political scientist who was doing a study and was interviewing Lee Atwater. And Lee was feeling kind of proud of himself for all that he had accomplished. You know, he was a relatively young man and he was up there with the power brokers Mm. moving and shaking and he wanted to explain the brilliance behind this strategy. Mm -hmm. Wow. So he did. And I am so proud that that political scientist kept that recording. (laughs) (laughs) Because if we said it, they're like, no, that's not right. That's right. That's right. Right. But having Lee Atwater in his own words, in his own voice, when you listen to the tape, say it, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Because and when, so when you begin to think about it, it is deploying these dog whistles, yeah. law and order, welfare queen, yeah, right, inner city, mm-hmm. urban areas, those kinds of of terms thug, are designed to depict black people in the most uh, pernicious, the most unsavory way. But you're not saying, so when you say, I don't believe you just said that. You're like, well, what did I say? Right. I said, we, we <laughs> you know, I said we needed to have law and order. What, do you think we don't need to have law and order? Mm-hmm. Are you arguing against the safety and security? <laughs> right? Right. So... And under the guise of those dog whistles, I mean, it it it, it was like Ronald Reagan. Um, now he was the smoothest with that. I mean, oh, he was smooth. Oh, he he was. was silky smooth. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and you know, and part of it was he could do that genial, affable thing. Yeah. You know, oh, there you go again, <laughs> right? And 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 folks would oh, and so. He, Think about it. He's down at Neshoba County Fair. Mm. And Neshoba County is in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Mississippi is there. And that is where three civil rights workers, uh, Mickey Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman, were gunned down by the sheriffs and the Klan with the assist of the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. And these three civil rights workers were, were... first there to to look at a burned church in Philadelphia, Mississippi, but they were coming for Freedom Summer to help register black folks to vote. Mm -hmm. And the message Mississippi sent was, we will kill you. And they did. Mm -hmm. And then bury them under tons of um, 
dirt. And it took months to find them. Their murder led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the one that had ticked off the Southern Democrats so profoundly. So when Ronald Reagan goes to the Neshoba County Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and says, I'm a firm believer in states' rights. Mm. And folks look and say, you know, what did you just say? It's like, what did I say? (laughs) (laughs) So it is that ability to hide behind coded language that allowed some of the most the war on drugs. Oh, that's the, that was huge. I I remember going to school, doing the Dare program and all of that, thinking I, we're helping. But when you broke down Reagan's relationship with Nicaragua and the start of the crack epidemic, I've never read it that way before. And that was brilliant how you did that. It just showed how slick this guy was and how selfish this guy was. Yes, incredible and. And and so, you know, so one of the things I wanted to make clear on that was their goal was to fund the Contras yeah. against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. And when Congress was shutting down the money, they're just looking for a source of funds. And they found two. One was Iran, because Iran needed weaponry, and but there was a a law saying that the U.S. could not sell weaponry to Iran. So like, law small. <laughs> um, <laughs> remember, these are the law and order folk. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just need to make that clear. The, the, the second thing was there was lots of money in the sale of cocaine. Mm-hmm. And they began to set that network up so that they can funnel the profits. Now, initially, and part of what I made clear was that they, you know, when, before the, the, the crisis hits, Reagan's talking about, yes, and we have a narcotics problem and we're going to make sure that people who are addicted get treatment. It almost sounds like the opioid crisis right now, right? right? Exactly. Okay. (laughs) But when they hooked up with, um, is it Freeway Ricky Ross? Yes. Okay. When they hooked up with Freeway Ricky Ross, who could then um, work with uh, the gangs to get the drugs into South Central L.A. and then throughout the West Coast and then through a massive distribution center, uh, a distribution network throughout the United States, they started making money hand over fist. Mm. Now, you know that they had to know that the drugs that they were bringing in were decimating the black community. Oh, yeah. They had to know. (laughs) Right? They had to know. So I'm not saying they targeted the black community, but I'm saying they knew that it was decimating the black community with the drugs that they were bringing in because you've got the CIA and the National Security Council Mm. running interference for the drug runners. Right. So stopping the FBI, stopping the DEA, stopping customs so this stuff could flow through so that they could then get the money to fund the um, overthrow of the Sandinista government. Incredible. And 
in the middle of that devastation, what comes out of Ronald Reagan's mouth is not oops. <laughs> it's not uh-oh. It's not sorry. It's like we've got a scourge that is attacking our beautiful American system and our families, and we are going to lock them up. Lock them up. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where we get um, the, this major explosion that gives us mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, yeah. I think that that right there is incredible because it showed that link into how, you know, the white rage doesn't really care about African-Americans because at one time we were property and still in some of their heads, that's how it should be. So let's make the money we want. And at the same time, since we don't want them part of the system, let's make money off of them. So now yes. let's incarcerate them. Yeah, and, and what that does then with that mass incarceration is it, it leads then to the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. the rights coming under the Voting Rights Act, and the rights coming under the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Because then as a convicted felon in, in several states like um, Florida, you've got permanent felony disfranchisement. Mm-hmm. You're a felon. You can't vote. In Florida, over 20% of African Americans cannot vote because of felony disfranchisement. Now, Florida is one of those key swing states. Think about the role that Florida played in the 2000 election. The role that Florida played in the 2016 election. And when you remove 20% 20% of black voters from that, you have tilted those elections yeah. via mass incarceration, via felony disfranchisement, via the war on drugs. Yeah, this, I mean, your book laid it out that it is very important to look at what the system's trying to attack the most and yeah. look at the back, back. I know they're going to say some. You know, they're going to use those dog whistles. you got to really be able to decipher those and realize this is what we need to go after. This is what they don't want because this is going to change the system in a way that they do not want to. And th- and that that brings up another question I have. Mm-hmm. What is it about now? What is What do you think is the true root cause of this white rage? So the, 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 the latest version of white rage that we're seeing right now is the response to the election of Barack Obama. Yeah. A black man in the White House? Right. I'm sorry, a black man <laughs> in the White House? So Whitney Dow, who studies whiteness, right, mm-hmm. he talked about how – and he's, he's gone around the nation interviewing white people. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how, like, the, the Christmas cards that would come out with Barack, Michelle, Sasha, and Malia were discombobulating, disconcerting. I mean, it was like, this is black family <laughs> living in the White House. What are they doing there? Because you want to talk about aspirations, 
for a black person to believe that they could become president of the yeah. United States? Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, I think Chris Rock made a movie, but it was supposed to be a joke, right? Oh, yeah. As, <laughs> <laughs> And because it was like, oh, this will never happen. (laughs) (laughs) And it did. And not only did his election happen, but it was the way that it happened. Mm -hmm. Because using his community organizing skills, he realized that there were lots of people out there who had been previously alienated from the system. And so they did massive targeted voter registration drives. Not only massive targeted voter registration drives, but then also helping people get to the polls on election day. Mm -hmm. That turnout, the demographic of new voters, 2 million new black folk, 2 million new Hispanics, 600,000 new Asian Americans, and the population of those who made, the percentage of those who made less than $15,000 a year, so we're talking about the poor, right? went up by a third. Mm, wow. Bringing that demographic group into the the workings of democracy into the workings of politics. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. These were the folks who were like, no, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> so black men in the white house, a demographic group and a demographic group that has a vision about the role of government mm-hmm. to and with its people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is so fundamentally different than white rage. And so the response has been, how do we shut this down? Mm -hmm. How do we shut down Obama? So you saw all kinds of crazy obstructionism um, and crazy disrespect. Mm -hmm. But you also saw, how do we shut down his voters? And I really, as I'm charting this thing, um, when you think about Donald Trump, Lord. (laughs) When you think about that cast of, of, of other Republican presidential candidates, mm-hmm. um, you had some in there who had experience um, as senators, as governors. I mean, they had been in politics for a while. Mm-hmm. And he rolled over every last one of them. Because what he brought to the table, they were bringing dog whistles. He was bringing the bark. <laughs> sure. <All> right. <laughs> you know, he's bringing his birtherism. Mm-hmm. So imagine this, what he's saying when he's telling a black man, show me your papers to prove you're an American. Right. It's like back in the slave days. Exactly. Show me your paper so I know what plantation you belong on. Mm-hmm. What he brought was birtherism. He brought p- pure, uncut white supremacy mm-hmm. to the body politic and said, this is what I can deliver. Everything else is hugely big, huge. It's going to be great. It's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> 
But what I can give you is white supremacy, uncut, raw, backed by the federal government. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing today. Mm -hmm. Think about it. Um, the remilitarization of the police forces. Yep. Um, the uh, heightened, you know, Jeff Sessions wants to, no, I'm sorry, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. <laughs> wants right. to um, re-up the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Trying to bring it all back again, right? Yes. Um, we've got the Election Integrity Commission, um, <laughs> which has some of the most notorious voter suppressors on it. Yeah. Based on Trump's lie that there were millions of 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 people illegally voting, and when fraudulently they, voting. And when they pull that out, it's like, point zero 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 one percent yes like, who has time to do that <laughs> right. it, it, it is so like but what it's designed to do is to give the the veneer of legality yeah. the veneer of a well-developed policy based on studies and hearings yada 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 to therefore recommend and implement nationwide voter suppression mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because if you can keep all of these people that obama constituency from voting then white rage can rule right unencumbered we'll be right back The streets are patrolled by unfamiliar authority This prison industrial complex Sets the pathway for us to go from being students to convicts So we hang in clusters, many become hustlers We trust nobody and nobody can trust us Typecast as criminals, that's menacing So we still get followed around the store even when we innocent Devastated by the usual underplanning the segregated like mutual understanding Afraid of what they don't know Blind to the prospects That they don't have to be confined to the projects Open up your mind to the logic Let's expand The reward is how far your squad gets Hard living when you feel like a target So the revolution starts to spark the whole market say for those people who say why are black people complaining look look when we turn on the tv we see people like oprah we see all <laughs> uh, you guys are pro progressing how's that an issue what, what would be your response to people like that you know i just, i find it fascinating that on one hand oprah becomes the standard that all black people have made it mm -hmm. um and how do you say that 
when Michael Bennett has a gun put to his head. Right. By the uh, Las Vegas PD. Mm-hmm. How do you say that when a 12-year-old boy is gunned down in the park and police lie about it and nothing happens to the police? So not only are we dealing with uh, the, the, the very real threat of physical violence with absolutely no justice, but we're also dealing with the realities of the systemic, deep economic inequality. So let's take Oprah. Even with Oprah's money, black people still need 228 years wow. to equal the wealth of whites in the United States. Wow. And wealth is that thing that allows you to evacuate when there's a hurricane. Mm-hmm. Wealth is that thing that allows you to stay in your home when you've lost your job Mm -hmm. because you can rely upon your wealth. You're not living paycheck to paycheck. The structure of the black middle class is fundamentally wealth-based different than the structure of the white middle class. And that structure was based on public policy. It was based on the policy where the – the feds provided um, via FHA loans, yeah. loans to whites to build their homes so that they could gain the kind of equity in it mm-hmm. that blacks do not have. Because blacks were the, – the way that the FHA rule read was we are all about maintaining property values. <laughs> Therefore, we will not lend to black people in black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And – Because we're all about property values, we will not lend to black people who are trying to buy in white neighborhoods. (laughs) Right. (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, We we actually uh, interviewed someone named Richard Rothstein. Yes. He has a book called The Color of Law. Yes. He broke that down in in a way that was just showing that he went – and on that angle, on that trajectory of white rage and talked about that part of the economic system. And that was just incredible. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, and so when, 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 because it becomes really easy to point to, well, you know, you got Clarence Thomas. <laughs> do we need you know, to? <laughs> or, or, or all you have to do is because one of the, the key elements, what I talk about in White Rage, one of the key narratives that came out of the civil rights movement as a counter to the narrative in the civil rights movement of systemic inequality mm-hmm. was to say we remove the signs of colored and white only. Uh-huh. So inequality is now no longer is an issue. So this is about your drive, your will to succeed. And if you don't, it's because you've got a, you know, you're lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just waiting for a government handout. Mm-hmm. Um, or you've got a culture of poverty, all of the above. So it becomes a personal issue. Right. And that has been part of the the sob, the, the bomb that is used in this society to say black people could make it if they would just work hard. Right. And people like you who help narrate what is going on show that we've always been pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We've always tried our best to put a soul and put credibility in the Constitution, you know, and yeah. – when they say stuff like that, once you really understand, you just laugh at it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think about, you know, the, the whole patriotism thing, and I'm thinking about my father who fought in World War II and in Korea. Mm. 
And so he's fighting for democracy and he can't vote. Right. Wow. Right. Wow. But Trump gets five deferments for a whack-a-mole bone spur. But puts a lapel pin on it, you know, a flag pin on his lapel and says, hey, I'm patriotic. (laughs) So so what do you think about white rage today? We got the whole DACA thing going. You know, they're focusing on 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 African-Americans still, but now they're going after others. Like, what what do you think is going on? Because, yeah. And and, and so one of the things because I get this question sometimes. One of the things to remember about white rage, so I guess I focused in on African-Americans, but it also is geared toward other folk who get out of their place. Mm-hmm. Who, so when you think about um, uh, the Latino community in the United States, they are growing. Yeah. Um, they are beginning to exert some political influence. Um, they are when you think about um the the dreamers the daca folk they ninety one percent of them are employed mm. um almost fifty percent of them i believe own their own homes mm. they are pushing back not the daca folk but the latinos in the United States who are American citizens. Mm-hmm are pushing back on these voting rights restrictions. So like MALDEF is just, you know, fighting um, Texas's uh, voter ID laws as hard as the legal defense fund is, Mm -hmm. right? right? That quest for access to their rights to vote, to education, to housing, has led to this backlash. Mm -hmm. As long as they were willing to be labor without rights, you know, yes, it's like, okay, come, but, you know, your kids can't really go to school. You really can't get health care, and we really don't have to pay you a lot. (laughs) So come. (laughs) 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 But the moment you start seeing this movement toward the right to vote, toward education, toward labor standards, Mm -hmm. Employment opportunities, boom. Yep, there you go. So, what what do you what do you say to white people who abhor? You know that that just think this is just horrible. What's going on? You know we're trying yeah. our best as black and brown people to fight against the system, but sometimes white people feel like it might not be my fight, but they want to do something. What what should they be doing? If you don't like this okay. white rage, what should you be doing? Right, and and I, I get this question too, hmm. and uh, and so what I say is, and I get it, I get it from whites. Mm-hmm. What can I do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is a conversation that whites have to have with whites. Yeah. And you know, when you're sitting around the dinner table, okay. and Uncle Joe says something stupid. <laughs> You know, whites built this nation, and now all these other people are trying to take it from us. There you go. Right. <laughs> you can't let that sit there. Right. This, because, I mean, we point. are on the precipice, mm-hmm. and this requires whites' full engagement mm-hmm. in moving their community mm-hmm. into understanding, because 
part of what's fueling white rage is a mindset that rights and resources are just a zero-sum game. Mm. That if I get, it's at your expense. If you get, it's at my expense. Mm -hmm. When you have that frame, it leads to this kind of, what do you mean? Uh, you know, we've got this affirmative action thing, and all of these unqualified minorities are getting my slot. They're getting my job. When you think about how we wasted $1 trillion on the war on drugs, oh, yes, yes. let's begin to think about how we could have really funded education. Right, exactly. I mean, But instead, we went the white rage route. Right. You bring up a good point, because I've been told, I know uh, friends been told that to help change our community, it starts in the household. And that doesn't just apply to African-Americans. You laid it out plainly. If you're at the table and someone speaks in a certain way that you don't like, step up. It starts in the household. It's the same over there, right? Yes, right. yes. So, you know, and so, think about it. During the 2016 election, how many times did you hear somebody say, well, you know, my sister – well, you know, my brother, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to mess things up over, you know, our, our birthday party. I didn't want to da, 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 da. Right. But when they're thinking, we built this nation and now they're trying to take it. Wow. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, I remember lots of Chinese building the railroad system. Mm -hmm. I remember lots of black folk. Because slavery accounted for 80% of the nation's uh, mm. GNP wow. in 1860, right? Mm. 80%. I'm thinking this wasn't a white-built thing only. I'm just <laughs> saying. It's, it's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so how has writing this book changed you in any way? You know, what it, it's done is I, I knew lots of these pieces from my other work, but I'm, I'm really um, um, a, a historian of U.S. foreign relations. Hmm. So that's why I was – so when I'm getting into the Nicaragua thing, that's why I'm able to write about it with a level of clarity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so – but what it has done is that I've, I've had these snippets, and then I've got, had to go deep into the research to then pull it out. And so it's made me a better researcher. It's mm -hmm. made me a better writer, and it's made my analysis even crisper mm -hmm. as I'm looking at what's unfolding before us today. That's what I've, I've, I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of impact that it's had. It's made it um, so that when I can see the 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 re the reversal of the DACA program, and there's no reason to do that. Yeah. Um, I'm like, oh, that's what this is. <laughs> when I'm seeing the Department of Justice saying we're getting ready to staff up so that we can find these universities and colleges that are discriminating against white applicants. <laughs> Oops, we didn't mean that. We meant Asian applicants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, mm, I know what that is. Yeah. You know, 
because again, we we and you saw it with Charlottesville. We got drawn to Charlottesville yeah. because you had this kind of overt, blatant. We know what this this is. This kind of overt white supremacy. Woo! There it is. Mm-hmm. Jews will not replace us, right? We right. know what that is. We know, yeah. But. When the Secretary of State here in Georgia purged over half a million people off of the voter rolls around the same time as Charlottesville, you barely heard a mumbling word. That's right. That's I, that's perfect about your book. That's, that's I think the thing I learned that stuck out the most to me is once you understand – the different phrases. Don't doubt yourself and think it's something different because it isn't. They make us <laughs> doubt ourselves. Like, oh, that's what you're saying is racist. But how? But it is. Once you start digging it, in and focusing, mm-hmm. you realize that's what it is. It really isn't. And one of the other things that um, I wanted the book to be able to do, and and from the response that I've I've received, it it is doing that. It's not only giving people the language, but it's giving them the examples. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, well, Lincoln freed the slaves. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, after the Civil Rights Act, um, after the Civil Rights Movement, everything was, you know, America was equal. So if there's any inequality, it's just because black people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm. Okay, well, let's talk about that. (laughs) And so being able to have these well-documented historical examples is also what this book um, does. Yeah. So if if you had to lay it all out, what do you want want the reader to mainly take away from this book? Um, That white rage has to fight back because we keep fighting. We Mm -hmm. keep aspiring. We keep achieving. And we will continue to do so until we diffuse the power of white rage. Well, Dr. Kara Anderson, thank you so much for writing this book. And we truly appreciate it, you being on the show. Okay. Thank you so much, Taj. I really appreciate it. This was a wonderful conversation. And everybody, register to vote and then go vote. Yes, yes. Absolutely. And and go and, and and to go a little deeper with that, not just vote in the presidential elections, but there's all the others that are very important. Exactly. Exactly. Because it was the midterm election in twenty ten that has unleashed this demon that we're dealing with right now. Right. Exactly. So exactly. it vote in all of the elections. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Doctor Karen Anderson. Thank you so much, Tosh. Bye bye. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we would then put toward the operations of this show. Um, And also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore. <laughs>